Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Father God, thank you so much for our time to come together this morning and to sit underneath your word, Lord. Thank you so much for uh, the growth that you cause in our lives, and thank you so much for everything that you do uh, to cause us to come closer uh, to you, Father. We love you, and we pray that today that we would not leave this building unchanged by you, but, Lord, that we would leave uh, closer with you and closer with one another. Father, we love you. We pray that you'd be with us this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So before we uh, dive into the word, everyone loves a good story. Everyone loves a good book or a good movie or a good show. But most of the time, you don't really watch a movie or watch a show or read a book without first reading a summary of it. You don't typically pay the money to go and buy a book without reading the back of it to see what the author says about the book and to see what other people say about the book or to see, uh, or you don't go to the movies without first watching a preview or at least hearing by word of mouth if the movie that you want to see was any good. So a good summary or preview gets you interested. It doesn't go into full detail but it doesn't leave everything out either. It's just just enough. A good summary is just enough to get you to want to open the book and read the whole thing or to watch the whole movie or whatever it is. And so the Beatitudes that we're going to go through this morning in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes are a good summary of the Christian life. They ought to leave us wanting more details. They ought to leave us wanting more of what the Bible has to say about walking with Christ. So before we dive into our scripture this morning, my main point is if you're a follower of Jesus, that you would leave this building encouraged by God's promises and challenged by these verses to go deeper in your walk with him. And that if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that today would be the day that you make the decision to follow Christ and to let him be Lord of your life. A pretty simple point, but a very complex passage. Uh, We're going to read that right now. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so if you have a bulletin, there's an 
there's an insert in your bulletin that has a fill in the blank uh, outline for you. Uh, but before we get to that, before we get to that outline today, um, I want to go over a few things regarding this passage and the whole uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is the next few passages or few uh, chapters in Matthew. Uh, and so the first thing I want to go over before we get into your notes is first is that the Sermon on the Mount begins and ends sandwiched between chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35. So let's look at those verses real quick. Chapter 4, verse 23 says this, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And then chapter 9, verse 23 as you skip through this and as you read through, I mean, some of you might have uh, subject outlines in your Bibles and you, you skip through this and you see Jesus teaching. And then you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and you look in chapter 7, I'm sorry, you look in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, he says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And then 9, 23 uh, or yes, 9.35, I'm sorry. In 9.35, he says verbatim what he says in 4, verse 23. He says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So the first uh, thing to take note of, and this is not in your outline, but it sets us up for the rest of the Sermon on the Mountain, a few, the next few passages uh, in Matthew, is that you cannot pick and choose what you believe about Jesus. You cannot pick and choose what you believe about Jesus. You can't say, well, I believe that Jesus was a miracle worker and that he could do all these things that he did, and, uh, but I just don't believe that what he said has anything to do with my life. I don't believe that he has any relevance, that the words that he said, they're ancient, they're 2,000 years old, so I'm just going to, I'm going to not do that. But I believe that when I need God, I can call on him and, and uh, he'll be there. You can't pick and choose what we believe about Jesus. And the other side of that, you can't say, well, I believe that Jesus' authority, he has authority in what he teaches and, and, and his words are practical for living, but I don't believe in the fact that he can and does do miraculous works and what he said he could do. I don't, I don't think I believe that, but I believe that his teachings were okay. You can't pick and choose what you believe about Jesus. It's the first thing to note about the Sermon on the Mount and these next few passages uh, in Matthew. I had a guy uh, come into my office a couple weeks ago, and he said, uh, he's a seasoned preacher, and he said, you're preaching on the Beatitudes this week. I do not envy you. <laughs> And I like to note funny things that people say to me, and I didn't know why he said that because it was a few weeks ago, and I started studying for this passage, and I determined that the Beatitudes could be broken up into eight different sermons. So I understand why he said that now. Uh, so we're going to cook through a lot of information today uh, to get through these Beatitudes and to give you a good overview of what's going on here. So the second thing I want to note about the Sermon on the Mount, it was taught by Jesus to his disciples in the presence of of a large crowd. We see that in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. 
It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, and he goes through the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the, Began- the, Sermon on the Mount is taught by Jesus to his disciples in the presence of a large crowd. John Piper says this about uh, the Beatitudes in this section of Scripture. He says, the audience is probably two concentric circles, the inner circle of the disciples and the outer circle of the crowds. It says in verse 1 that he taught his disciples, but look at the end of the sermon where he says, uh, and we just read these verses a moment ago, where he says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it is clear that the crowds were listening and that Jesus wanted them to listen, even though the sermon is primarily addressed to his disciples. So what does that look like today? That might look like a typical sermon at a typical church. It's a pastor's job to equip the congregation, equip other believers to go out into the world and, and to uh, be bold for Jesus and all this other stuff. It's a pastor's job to help a congregation grow um, in their walks with the Lord. But there are those sitting in the pews that may not know Jesus, that may be overhearing what the pastor is saying. And so I think that's sort of what's going on here with Jesus talking to his disciples, yet the crowds are there and they're listening. The third thing I want to note about the Beatitudes, I guess the first thing about the Beatitudes and not the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, the Beatitudes are not a list of things that you must do to earn salvation. The Beatitudes are not a list of things that you must do in order to earn salvation. In fact, at the end of chapter 5, and you don't have to turn there with me, but at the end of chapter 5 in verse 48, it says, Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, which none of us are capable of. The standard is perfection, And so if this list is the list of things that we must do to earn salvation, we might as well go home right now because we we can't do it. It's impossible. Only through faith in him do we have salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You can turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a list of things you must do to earn salvation. It can't happen. And the rest of Scripture teaches that as well. It's not just these two verses that I've referenced here. Lots of other references that teach that. The fourth thing is, rather than a list to earn salvation, the Beatitudes are more of a list of characteristics or attributes and attitudes that the Christian develops as they walk with Jesus. The promises that are in the Beatitudes are not just for future reference, but are currently available for us to enjoy uh, in part. And I've got a uh, commentary that I really enjoyed uh, reading this past week, and he does a great job at the Beatitudes. It's by William Barclay, and I I, uh, encourage you to read it if you have a copy. Um, And he says these words about the Beatitudes. He says, The Beatitudes are not 
pious hopes of what shall be. They are not glowing, but nebulous prophecies of some future bliss. They are congratulations on what is. The blessedness which belongs to the Christian is not a blessedness which is postponed to some future world of glory. It is a blessedness which exists here and now. It's not something into which the Christian will enter. It is something into which he has entered. True, it will find its fullness and its consummation in the presence of God, but for all that it is, a present reality to enjoy here and now. The Beatitudes, in effect, say, Oh, the bliss of being a Christian. Oh, the joy of following Christ. Oh, the sheer happiness of knowing Jesus, Christ as Master, Savior, and Lord. The very form of the Beatitudes is the statement of the joyous thrill and the radiant gladness of the Christian life. In face of the Beatitudes, a gloom-encompassed Christianity is unthinkable. And he ends with this. The greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are not wistful glimpses of some future beauty. They are not even golden promises of some distant glory. They are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. So what I mean by this, there's another sandwich. We talked about that earlier between uh, verse 4, uh, 23, and verse 935. But there's another sandwich within the Beatitudes. And when an author of Scripture repeats himself, it's important for us to pay attention to what's going on. So look at verse 3 in chapter 5. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you skip down to verse 10, where he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the rest of these promises, and the rest of these verses, he says, For they shall be comforted, those who mourn. The gentle, they shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. The merciful, they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart, they shall see God. The peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. The promise is the kingdom of heaven. These other, these other attributes and attitudes fall within that promise, and they... Uh, we start to understand that as we grow uh, with Christ. We give an example here. When we mourn, do we receive comfort? You betcha. Are we comforted as Christians when something happens in our lives? Yeah. But I don't think we fully understand what it means to be comforted until we reach glory, until we are in heaven with Jesus. We don't receive that promise in full, but are able to enjoy it in part as we walk with Christ on this earth. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Has God not already shown you mercy? But yet, we don't understand what that will fully look like until we get to heaven and we see Jesus and we're with him. We get to enjoy this future promise in this present time in part. I hope this is making sense. The first, uh, the, the last thing I want to note about the Beatitudes is that the word blessed in these verses can be translated as happy or fortunate. So after all that information, how are the Beatitudes a summary or preview of the Christian life? So let's take a look. First of all, if, these, if blessed can be translated as happy or fortunate, 
fortunate are the poor in spirit. That ought to leave you wanting to know what else the Bible has to say. Why is somebody that's poor in spirit fortunate? Why does the Bible say that this person is blessed? Why does the Bible say that this person is happy? And you can go through the whole list of the Beatitudes. Why are these people considered blessed, happy, and fortunate to be in this condition? That ought to make you want more in and of itself. So the first fill in the blank on your outline there in verses 3 and 4, they tell us of our condition. I'll read this one more time. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They tell us of our condition. Poor in spirit, without Jesus, we're nothing. Without Jesus, we, we're doomed. We come to Jesus with empty hands. We have nothing to bring to the table. And as I stated earlier, we can't earn our salvation. There's nothing you and I can do to satisfy the penalty and the payment for sin. Jesus Christ had to do that for us. Without Jesus, we're poor in spirit. We are empty-handed. Uh, Isaiah 57, 15 in the New Living Translation. And I have it written down because I don't have a New Living Translation Bible with me at the moment. Isaiah 57, 15 says, The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Romans 3, 8 through 12. You can turn there with me. Romans chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I know that Old Testament to New Testament flip is kind of complicated sometimes. Uh, Romans 3, 8 through 12 says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their, con their condemnation is just what is just is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already changed a charge that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Our condition is poor. We're poor in spirit without Jesus. But the beauty of that is when we come to that realization and we ask the Lord to be our Savior and we begin that relationship with Him, what do we receive? We receive the Holy Spirit. And at that point, you're made right in the eyes of God. At that point, you're Jesus has paid for that penalty that you owe. That's the gospel right there. You're poor in spirit, but because of Jesus, you're made rich in spirit because you have the Holy Spirit, God living within you. That's good stuff. We're poor in spirit, and because we're poor in spirit, we're mourning on your uh, on B there in the in the first point. We're mourning. The Greek word for mourning 
here is, and I don't, I can't pronounce it because it's hard. <laughs> uh, but it means sorrow at its deepest level. Mourning is sorrow at its deepest, deepest level. So what are we mourning for then? Well, we're, we're mourning because we realize our sin and our poor in spirit condition. We realize our sinfulness. We realize what it can do. We see sin's effect on the world. Again, I, I uh, quote Barclay, and he says this about that, uh, that chapter or that uh, section of, of the Beatitudes about verse uh, four. He says, as we have seen the very first word of the message of Jesus was repent. And that's, we see that in chapter four. Uh, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. No man can repent unless he is sorry for his sins. The thing which really changes men is when they suddenly come up against something which opens their eyes to what sin is and what sin does. That is what the cross does for us. As we look at the cross, we are bound to say, this is what sin can do. Sin can take the loveliest life in all the world and smash it on the cross. One of the great uh, functions of the cross is to open the eyes of men and women to the horror of sin. And when a man sees in all its horror, he cannot do anything else but experience intense sorrow for his sin. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. Blessed is the man who is intensely sorry for his sin, the man who is heartbroken for what sin is and what sin does and what sin has done to Jesus Christ, the man who sees the cross and who is appalled by the havoc wrought by sin. It is the man who, uh, who has that experience who will indeed be comforted. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It ought to break our hearts when we see the sin in our lives. We ought to mourn over that. And more of that, not just more than that, but we ought, we ought to mourn over sin's effect on the world. The fact that it's running rampant in our society and in our culture and across the globe. That ought to make us, that ought to make us really sad. It ought to break your heart especially when it's your sin as a believer, as we, as we walk away from Jesus and sometimes step back into old habits or, or walking in unrepentant sin, you ought to look at that and it ought to make you sad. It ought to make you mourn. It ought to make you sorry for what's going on in the world. The next thing that uh, this ver these verses talk about in verses five and six it says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The next thing, that, and you're filling the blanks, is it talks about our response. Our response to our condition. We ought to be gentle in our response to our condition. Gentle, what does that mean? Well, because we realize our spiritual condition without Christ, and we mourn for the effects of sin, in our lives and in our world, it helps us to take on an attitude of gentleness. And again, the Greek here, it means to be self-controlled or more so God-controlled, and it means to be humble. 
your sin in light of God's holiness and the fact that he has forgiven us and, and has paid our penalty, that ought to make us humble. That ought to make us really humble. A few verses for you. Proverbs 16.32. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. In Psalm 37, 8 through 11. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only by it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. It'll Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and will not, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. In the next two sections we find in James. James chapter 4, if you're turning with me. Verses 6 through 8. And a little side note about James is he quotes the Sermon on the Mount often. You can find a lot of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. James 4, 6 through 8 says, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then back a couple chapters, James 1, verses 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In our response to our condition, it ought to make us humble and it ought to make us hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we become more aware of that condition and as we respond to this broken world with gentleness and humility, that takes effort. That's hard to do. It's hard to humble yourself before God and especially before man. We always want to be better than the people around us for some reason. And that's not how it works. That's not how the scripture tells us to behave. And so in order to be humble, we have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It ought to make us starving or dehydrated for more of God, for more of holiness, patiently waiting for God's justice, desiring to live in his word and to know him more and to live in his will. When I think of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I think of somebody that lives in a place where meals are few and far between. You know, that could be here in this country or in another. A lot of us don't even know what it's like to really be hungry. A lot of us don't really know what it's like to go a few hours without having something to drink. I feel like we should hunger in that fashion 
as if we're starving for righteousness, as if we're dehydrated. Because in light of our spiritual condition without Jesus, we are. We're starving and we're dehydrated. And, and the funny thing is, and it's not funny, but the thing is we fill up where God should be in our lives with other things. And we wind up needing more and more and more of whatever it is because you're hungry and you're thirsty, but you're not going to the right source to fulfill that need. As Christians, we ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness if somebody as somebody that's actually starving and actually dehydrated. The seventh and eighth verse, they talk about our growth. That's your next fill in the blank, our growth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we walk with Jesus, we grow and we learn how to have mercy. And, and, uh, and so we got to give a, de- a good definition of what mercy is. What has God done for us? How has God shown us mercy? How will we receive mercy? Well, he doesn't give us what we deserve. And the opposite side of the coin of that is grace. He gives us wonderful things that we don't deserve. So how do we do that in our lives? How do we give somebody, or how do we not give something, or someone something they deserve, someone that has wronged us? How do we let go of that? And I think that the answer is between uh, you and the Lord, but if we don't understand mercy, my question is, do we really understand the gospel? If we don't understand mercy, do we understand the gospel? For some of you, this might be an easy thing to do, to have mercy on people. It might be something as easy as not getting aggressive in traffic when somebody cuts you off and makes you mad, right? Especially for those of us that might have moved here from larger cities. Speaking for myself. (laughs) But for some of you, it might be really hard to learn how to show mercy. There's some serious hurt in this world, some things that have been done to you that are unspeakable. How do we show mercy in a situation like that? And I think it starts with prayer and I think it starts with understanding that our sinfulness has offended a perfect God and that he has shown us mercy. So how are we unable to show mercy to another human being? And I don't... I don't say this to say that if you have mercy on somebody, your relationship with that person should be the same. Perhaps maybe what has happened to you, there are legal circumstances that don't allow you to have that same relationship, and that's fine. That doesn't disable you from showing mercy. But I think it starts with where your heart is. Uh, James 3.13, if you're still of your finger in James. James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good deeds uh, and behavior in the gentleness of wisdom. And also in James, he talks about how 
mercy triumphs over judgment and those who are not shown mercy who, are, who do not show mercy won't be shown mercy and as we talked about how it starts with where our heart is that leads us to our second point there in, in uh, under verses 7 and 8 is that we're to be pure in heart blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God again the Greek word here I can actually pronounce this one is called catharsis proud of myself for that one the Greek word is catharsis it means we should have biblical righteous motives for the things that we say and do a pure in heart having good motives Proverbs 16 2 you don't have to turn there with me I'm just going to read it real quick off my notes Proverbs 16 2 says all the ways of man are clean in his own sight but the Lord weighs the motives Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 Again, you can turn there with me if you want, but I'm just going to read it off my notes real quick. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What are your motives for what you're doing? And I think that comes with our growth as we're in this point of growth. As we grow with Christ, our lives become less about us and more about him. As we grow in Christ, our motives become less about what kind of attention or approval can I get and, and how much attention and, and praise can I give to the Lord? How can my life glorify God in every situation? Are we there yet? Certainly not. There are certainly those times we have selfishness within us. It will always be there until we uh, get to heaven. But as we grow in Christ, we learn how to be more pure in heart. We learn how to move our motives, how to shift our motives towards Jesus and not towards ourselves. And then the last point here on your outline is Verses 9 through 11, they talk about our result, the result of living the Christian life. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then at verse 11 is a continuation of verse 10. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are the peacemakers. As we grow in Christ, we start to begin this process of being a peacemaker. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Again, we see the Greek and the Hebrew and Aramaic for for peace and it's called Irene or in Hebrew it's shalom and you've probably heard that word before this Greek word and this Hebrew word does not mean only the absence of evil but it also means the enjoyment of everything good there's a difference between a peacemaker and a peace lover we can all want peace but who among us are actively seeking to make that happen 
We all want to have peace with each other. We all want to have peace with God. And the beautiful thing about having peace with God is, is that's made possible through Jesus Christ upon coming to know him as Lord and Savior. You have peace with God. How awesome is that, that you have peace with a holy and perfect God that you have offended? But I think what Jesus is getting at here is that uh, is peace between humanity, peace between each other that belong to him. In other words, if I have a problem with somebody, not to let it fester and to hope that the problem goes away or the other way around, if somebody has a problem with me that they wouldn't let it fester and, and hope that it goes away, that's not being a peacemaker. Peacemaking is, is conflict. You have to talk to people. You have to tell them what's wrong. You have to get out of your comfort zone that's part of what it means to grow in Christ and to grow as a body in Christ is that we are able to confront each other in that way without getting all up in arms, without getting offended. It takes guts to do that. It takes maturity to do that. It takes growth to do that. And that's why I've labeled it as a result of walking with Jesus. It takes us some time to get there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And again, the promise there is not just for future reference, but is able to be called, uh, you're able to be called a son or a daughter of God now. Those of you that know Jesus, we're already called that. But again, we won't experience the fullness of that promise until we are in heaven with him, what it means to be an heir or a son of daughter of the risen king. And then point B in your outline here is persecuted. As a result of your walk in Christ, you will be persecuted. Verse 10 and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you remember that bookend there, that sandwich in verse 11, blessed are you, not if, but blessed are you when. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. As a result of living a Christian life, you will be persecuted. But remember that Greek for blessed, happy, fortunate are you when you're persecuted for Christ's sake. As you seek to live, to live at peace, and I back up real quick to Romans chapter 12, actually, verses 17 and 18, it says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So as we seek to be at peace with all men and with each other, people won't always accept that, especially those that don't know Jesus. And you'll face persecution because of it. The very thing that Jesus tells us to accomplish, to be a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers, we're going to get persecuted for that. But he says, fortunate are you when that happens. And the last verses I have for you is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. 
And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I met a a friend in Houston when I was living there and going to college there at, at church. And she had just become a new believer. She'd just become a Christian. And she was in Houston on a student visa from a, a country of another religion. And when she became a Christian, her family found out about it. And she said, I can't ever go home again because my family will kill me when I do. That's persecution right there. You know what happens on a student visa? You have to go home unless you apply for a work visa and eventually you know, go through the whole process. But by and large, you gotta go home. I don't know where that girl is today. I've not kept in touch with her. But what a legitimate fear for her faith and for her life. We had another friend that uh, sort of the same scenario they live in in the country but they come from a different religion and when she became a Christian they put her under house arrest for a long time basically until she graduated college and moved out on her own and got her own job and started paying her own bills and was separated from her family that's persecution right there you and I may never face persecution like that and we might we may never face persecution like we see in those instances and with the Apostle Paul and with the other disciples. But when we do, in verse 12, it tells us to rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As a result of your relationship with God, there will come times of persecution. And again, it may never be that severe for some of you. But pray that God would be with you in those instances and that he would, that he would prove to be joyful in that. It's hard to think about those things as we sit here in a safe place, in a safe community, in a small town, that people across the world face persecution that severe. But if you ever meet those kind of people, they're always the most joyful. They're always the most satisfied. They're always the most content with their life. And so I pray that that would be us as we go through the persecutions of life, that we would be content and satisfied and joyful in what Jesus has done for us. So as we close, I want to challenge you this afternoon to reflect on what we've talked about today, and I've crammed eight weeks of information into a 30-minute lesson, and so I hope that I didn't overload you, but I hope that you reflect today that you would remember your condition, that you would remember your condition without Jesus, that you're poor in spirit, that you're going nowhere. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses, but we're made alive in Christ. We're poor in spirit without Jesus, but we're made wealthy with the Holy Spirit upon 
knowing Jesus. That you would remember that and that you would respond with gentleness and humility and that you would pray for a hunger and a thirst like a starving person for righteousness and that you would grow in being merciful and in pure of heart and that that would result in you being able to make peace and in being able to rejoice in persecution. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in prayer this afternoon, just thanking you again for the time we had to go over the Beatitudes, Lord. May they be things that we strive for, things that we try to be. Lord, thank you that we can't make it on our own, but you have made a way for us to know you. You have made a way for us to have a relationship with you, and the standard is perfection, and we know that we can't meet that standard, but Lord, you have done that for us. We pray that as we reflect on these beatitudes, Lord, that we would, we would really see what it means to be poor in spirit, and that we would mourn over our sinfulness, that we would mourn over sin's effect in the world, and that it would cause us to grow, and it would cause us to be bold. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.